Our Square and the People in It, Part 2. Thus, Cyrus the Gaunt became a toiler in, and by slow degrees, a citizen of Our Square. We are a doubtful people where strangers are concerned. The ritual of initiation for Cyrus was, at first, chance words and offhand nods, then an occasional bidding to sit in at Schwartz's, and finally consultations and confidences on matters of import, political, social or private. Thus was Cyrus the Gaunt adopted as one of us. Quite from the outset of his job he became a notable pictorial asset of the place, standing out lank and black in the intermittent gleam of his own engine as he rolled on his appointed course amidst firmamental thunderings. Acting as chauffeur to ten tons of ill-balanced metal, he promptly discovered, is an occupation to which the Tyro must play explicit heed if he would keep within the bounds of his precinct. About the time when he was beginning to feel at ease with his charger, he came to a stop one misty night, directly opposite the window of a taxicab, and met a pair of eyes which straight away became fixed in a paralysis of amazed doubt. No, it isn't. It can't be, said the owner of the eyes presently. Yes, it is, contradicted Cyrus. Well, I'm jiggered. That's all the pious young Presbyterian boss of a fashionable church has a right to be, Cyrus responded. What are you doing up there? Piloting a submarine under Governor's Island. So I see. The taxi door opened and some six feet of well-tailored manhood mounted nimbly to Cyrus's side. What's the fare and why? Is it a bet? Cyrus the Gaunt grinned amiably in the face of the Reverend Morris Cartwright, whose appearance in that quarter did not greatly surprise him. How did you know? It's leaked out at the club, has it? asked Cyrus. Not that I know of. I guessed it. Thought nothing short of a bet would account for such reversal of form, eh? Keep it to yourself, and I'll tell you the rest. You've hired an ear, observed the young cleric. Maybe you heard that I had a nervous breakdown last spring. Kind of a mixture of things, said Cyrus. Yes, I know the mixture. Three of gin to one of Italian. You know too much for a minister, growled the other. Besides, it was only part that. I just sort of got sick of doing nothing and being nothing, and the sickness struck in, I expect. Well, one morning, after a night of bridge, I came out into the breakfast room, 900 plus to the good, and about ready to invest the whole in any kind of painless dope that would save me from being bored with this life any more. There sat Doc Jerrett, pink and smooth like a cherry stone clam. I stuck out my hand and it was shaking. I dare say my voice was shaking too, for Jerry looked up pretty sharp when I said, Doc, could you do anything for me? No, says he. Is it as bad as that? I asked. It's worse, says he. I'm a busy man with no time to waste on sure losses. Flat down, Cyrus, you aren't worth it. This is all I've got of me, I said. I'm worth it to myself. Then do it for yourself, he snapped, 
You're the only one that can. Will you tell me how? I will, says he, but you won't do it. You aren't man enough. Jerry, I said, you may be a good doctor, but you're a damn liar. Am I, says he? Prove it. Cut the booze and go to work. Work won't do me any good, I said. I've tried it, and it bored me worse than the other thing. When I'm bored, I naturally reach for a drink. There's a great truth in that, you know, Carty, if the temperance people would only grab it. Boredom and booze cause and effect. That's a hot line of advice, Doc, I said. Maybe you'll think better of it when you get my bill for fifty, says he. I've got it too. I've still got it. I don't mean Wall Street, Cyrus, says he. I mean work. You've never tried work. You've just played at it. I'll bet you a thousand, he went on. He was playing up to this all the time, Carty that you'd starve in six months if you tried to make your living where nobody knows you. Well, Carty, you know how I am with a bet. It comes just as natural to me to say, you're on, as here's how, or have another. I said it, and here I am. I'll bet Doc Jerrett's laughing yet, he concluded with a wry face. They say he's the best diagnostician going in his own line, the young clergyman studied Cyrus out of the corner of his eye. I wouldn't wonder if it were true. How do you like the prescription so far? Interesting, said Cyrus the Gaunt. I've been hungry, and I've been lonely, and I've been scared, and I've even been near yellow, but I haven't been bored for a minute. You never get bored, Carty, when you have the probabilities of your next meal to speculate on, pro and con. Odd jobs have been my stay, mostly, before I landed this. And when there wasn't anything in my own line, I kept up my nerve by catching them on the way down and shoving them into jobs on Jink Hereford's Canadian Preserve. Good man, approved the Reverend Morris Cartwright. What'll you have? he added. Frankfurters and a glass of milk if it's an open order, but you'll have to fetch it to me from Schwartz's. I can't leave this here skittish little pet of mine. Then and there some Sunday supplement missed a throbbing human interest story in that no reporter was present to witness one of New York's fashionable young pastors emerging from an obscure saloon bearing food and drink to the grimy driver of an all-night thunder wagon. And now, said Cyrus the Gaunt, handing down the empty glass, if it isn't one of your disgraceful secrets, what are you doing in this galley? heading off some poor unfortunate who wants to go to the devil peacefully in his own way? No, I leave that to the doctors, retorted the other mildly. Quite so, chuckled Cyrus. Throw some water in my face and drag me to my corner, will you? This is an errand of diplomacy, continued Cartwright. I'm an envoy. Do you happen to know which house... His ranging vision fell upon the row of figures joyously dancing in the window. Never mind, he said. I've found it. He disappeared between the portals of the old-fashioned hospitable door. Quite a considerable part of his week's wages would Cyrus the Gaunt have forfeited to interpret the visitor's expression when he came out a long hour later. He looked at once harassed, regretful, and yet triumphant, as one might look who had achieved the object of a thankless errand. 
The bonnie lassie came to the door with him and stood gazing out across the flaring lights and quivering shadows of R Square. It seemed to Cyrus that the flower face drooped a little. And indeed, the bonnie lassie was not feeling very happy. When one's adopted world goes well, the claims that draw one back become irksome ties. The messenger from the world which she had temporarily forgone was far from welcome. But at least she had claimed and won some months of respite and freedom for her work. So engrossed did she become with that work that she saw little or nothing of Cyrus the Gaunt until chance brought them together in the climactic fashion so dear to that protean arbiter of destinies. Returning one evening from a call upon a small invalid friend in the tenement quite remote from our square, the bonnie lassie essayed a cross-cut which skirted the mouth of a blind alley. From within there sounded a woman's scream of pain and fear. The bonnie lassie hesitated. It was a forbidding alley, and the scream was not inspiriting. It was repeated. Not for nothing is one undisputed empress of our square. The bonnie lassie had the courage of one who rules. She swooped into that black byway like a swallow entering a cave. Now the screams were muffled with a grisly choked sound. They led her flying feet towards a narrow side passage. But before she reached the turn, a towering bulk sped by her, almost filling the thin slit between the walls. When she came within view, the matter was apparently settled. A swarthy, vividly clad woman cringed against one wall. Against the other, Cyrus had pinned a swarthier man. The man, helpless, seemed to be wheedling and promising. With a final shake and a growl, the girl likened it in her mind to that of a great magnanimous dog, the gaunt one released the Sicilian and stopped to pick up his hat, which had fallen in the struggle. Then the girl's heart leapt and clogged her throat with terror, for as Cyrus turned, the pretense fell from the face of his opponent, and it changed to a mask of murder. His hand darted to his breast and came forth, clutching the thin, terrible homemade stiletto of the rag-picking tribe, a file ground to a rounded needle-point. The girl strove to cry out. It seemed to her only the whisper of a nightmare, but it was enough. Cyrus spun around and leapt back. His arm went out, stiff as a bar. At the end of it was a formidable something which flashed with an ugly glint of metal in the Sicilian's face. Whether or not she heard a report, the terror-stricken onlooker could not have said. But the would-be murderer screamed, tottered, withered, his weapon tinkled upon the coping. Then an arm of inordinate size and strength encircled the bonnie lassie, whirled her up out of a pit of blackness and supported her through a reeling void. At her ear, a quietly urgent voice kept insisting that she must walk, 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 and not let herself lapse. A shock jolted her brain. It was the smell of ammonia. The darkness dissipated, became an almost intolerable light, and she found herself seated opposite Cyrus the Gaunt 
at a polished metal table in an ice-cream parlour. "'Don't let go of my hand,' she whispered faintly. His big, reassuring clasp tightened. "'We got away before the crowd came,' he said. "'You have wonderful nerve. I thought you were gone.' "'Don't speak of it,' she shuddered. "'I can't stand it.' Not until, after a slow, silent walk, they were seated on a bench in our square, she could gather her resolution for the dreadful question. Did you kill him? Good Lord, no! But, but you shot him? Yes, with this. He thrust his hand in his pocket, and again, as she closed her eyes against the sight, she caught faintly the pungent stimulus that had revived her. What is it? Ammonia pop, a model of my own. Her eyes flew open, the colour flooded into her cheeks, but receded again. He might have killed you, she exclaimed. I thought when you turned away and I saw the dagger that... Oh, how could you take such desperate chance? Just a fool in the head, I guess. I supposed he was through. Don't know that breed, you see. But for you, he'd have got me. But for you, she retorted. I don't know what might have happened to me. How came you to be down in that slum? Oh, he said carelessly, I, I prowl. As far away as that? She looked at him sidelong. All around. I know that neighbourhood like a book. What's the name of that alley? Alley? Uh, what alley? Mr Cyrus Murphy, how long have you been following me about? He turned an unpicturesque dull red. Well, that's no place for a girl alone, he growled. You know, one evening I thought I saw you down near Avenue C, but I couldn't be sure, was it? It might have been, he grudged. Avenue C is a public thoroughfare. And you've been guarding me, she murmured. Her eyes brooded on him, and the colour was rising in her face to match his, but while Cyrus blushed like a brick, the bonny lassie blushed like the hue of flying clouds after sunset. Why don't you take a policeman? he blurted out. If anything should happen to you, it isn't safe, he concluded lamely. Not even when I'm chaperoned with an ammonia popgun, she smiled. Why do you carry that? For dogs. Dogs don't always like me. It's my clothes, I suppose. Any dog who wouldn't like and trust you on sight, she pronounced with intense conviction, is an imbecile. He smiled his acknowledgement. At that, her face altered. There you go, smiling once more, she said fretfully. You do it very seldom, but... I'm always smiling deep inside me at you, he said quietly. But when you smile outside, it makes you so different, and I find I've done you all wrong. Are you still scalping me? he asked in surprise. I, I have been, 
but I stopped. She paused, trying again to think of him as merely a model, and found to her discomfiture that it caused a queer inexplicable little pang deep inside her heart. Nevertheless, the artist rose overpoweringly within her at his next question. Do you want me to sit for you again? Oh, would you? Now? He glanced at the church clock. I've forty-seven minutes, he said. Much may be accomplished in forty-seven minutes. In the studio she sprang to her work with a sort of contained fury, and as the eager, intent eyes regarded him with an ever-increasing impersonality, a pain was born in his heart and grew and burned, because this woman, who had clung to him in the abandonment of mortal weakness but an hour before, whose pulses had leapt and fluttered for his peril, he had become only a subject for exploitation, something to further her talent, wax to her deft hand. Perhaps he had been that since the first. Well, what right had he to expect anything more? Nothing of this reached the absorbed worker. She was intent upon her model's mouth and chin, whereupon she had caught the sense of significant changes. Had she but once come forth from her absorption to see and interpret the man's eyes, she might have known. For only in the eyes does a brave man's suffering show. The rest of his face he may control beyond betrayal. Something happily restrained her from offering payment as usual when she finally threw the cloth over the unfinished sketch. You spoke of dogs not liking your clothes, she said lightly. Do you always sleep in them? Oh no, they sleep on the floor at the foot of my bed and keep watch. May I have them pressed? It would be an interesting change, but why ask my permission? because you told me once to come as is. So I did, she laughed, but that was before you were an honest working man. Go and get pressed out. No more use for me as a model? Oh, don't say that. But I'm to see you sometimes, he persisted. How could it be otherwise, with you doing patrol duty in front of my door, she twinkled. With unnecessary emphasis, she shut the door upon the retiring form of Cyrus the Gaunt. But his double, already inalienable, returned to the studio with her and formed a severely accusative third party to her dual self-communion. Said the woman within her, woefully, I mustn't see him again, I mustn't, I mustn't. Said the sculptor within her, exultingly, I've got him. I've got what I wanted, it's there, and I've fixed it forever. Which was a mistake of the sculptor's, however nearly right or wrong the woman may have been. Thenceforward, it appeared to Cyrus the Gaunt, the bonny lassie exhibited an increasing tendency toward invisibility. When he did see her, there were sure to be other people about, and she seemed subdued and distraught. Presently, the suspicion dawned upon Cyrus that she was avoiding him. Being a simple, direct person, he laid his theory before her. She denied it with unnecessary heat, but that didn't go far toward rehabilitating the old cheerful and friendly status. 
Cyrus the Gaunt, despite a wage which assured three excellent meals per day, began to grow gaunter. R Square commented upon it with concern. There came a time when, for ten consecutive days, Cyrus the Gaunt never set eyes upon the bonny lassie, nor did his ear so much as catch a single lilt of her laughter. At the end of that period, strolling moodily past his now flavourless job full two hours early, he beheld, mounting the steps of the funny little mansion, a heavy male figure clad from head to foot in what had a grisly suggestion of professional black. The sight sent a chill to Cyrus's heart. The chill froze solid when, on a nearer approach to the house, he heard the sound of voices within, joined in a slow chant. Half blind and shaking, he made his way to the rail and clung there. Slowly, the words took form and meaning, and this was their solemn message. The good man, when he falleth in love, and getteth snubbed, breaketh forth into tears, but the ungodly careth not a damn. For woman she is but vanity, a verily and false curls, and the wooing thereof is bitterness, for he wasteth his substance upon her, taking her picnics and balls, and she danceth with some other fella. Oh, slush! A window shade floated sideways, revealing to the peerer's gaze a gnome with blue ears beating out the tempo with the fire tongs for a quartet, consisting of an aeroplane, a Salvation Army captain, a white rabbit and an Apache, while a motley crowd circulated around them. In the intensity of his relief, Cyrus the Gaunt took a great resolve. Invited or not invited, I'm going to that party. McClacken's home of fashion on the corner was long since dark, but Cyrus's pedal fantasia on the panels brought forth the indignant proprietor. "'What have you got for me to go to a fancy party in, Mac?' demanded his disturber. "'Turnverin or Pansy Social Circle?' inquired the practical tailor. "'Neither. A dead swell party.' "'Go as you are, you fool!' said the Scot and slammed the door. "'Perfectly simple,' said Cyrus the Gaunt. "'I'll do it!' He hastened around to Schwartz's to wash his hands and smut his face artistically. 